have to start off this morning with a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, this series is heavily ripped off uh, from this book. Uh, make no apologies for that. It's one of the most helpful books that I've ever read. Uh, probably go in my uh, top three, I think, of, of books that I've read. Uh, it's the best subtitle award, I think. Uh, not such a great title, I think, because it's quite hard to give away when I don't desire God. Uh, but the How to Fight for Joy, I think, is a brilliant uh, subtitle, and that's really what the book explains. But this morning, we're not going to be reading huge chunks of the book. Uh, in fact, I'm going to try this series not to quote from John Piper at all. Uh, if I can, we'll see if I, I get away with that or not. Um, but we don't want to hear what John Piper thinks, do we? We want to hear what the Bible uh, says. Uh, what does the Bible say about fighting uh, for joy? Now, you might think it's a little bit of a strange title, really. Why are we talking about a fight for joy anyway? Well, two reasons. The first reason is because the Bible commands us to have joy. That might sound a little bit strange, but it's there. Again and again, we're told in the Bible uh, to rejoice. I haven't put these on the back of your sheet because there's so many of them. But Psalm 2.11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 5.11, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Psalm 32.11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Romans 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, finally, brothers, rejoice. Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, rejoice always. I could go on. The Bible calls us to rejoice, to have joy. Uh, joy is a fruit of the Spirit as well, isn't it? If you think about it, that's what the Spirit produces in us. Joy. It's not an optional thing in that sense. I mean, we wouldn't treat the other fruit of the Spirit, would we, as, as optional add-ons. You know, love in the Christian life is not an optional add-on. Self-control, well, you know, uh, no, it's not an optional add-on, is it? Faithfulness, you just don't uh, add it on, sort of see it as an extra. We work hard, don't we, at loving one another, at self-control, at faithfulness. Well, do we work hard at joy? More of that in a minute. But joy is not a bad thing. God wants us to be joyful. God wants us to be happy. Now, happiness is not the same thing as joy, but happiness is not a bad thing. Happiness, uh, so everybody seeks happiness. Here's a slightly long quote. I don't know if we'll be able to see it because it might be quite small. But this is from uh, Blaise Pascal. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend towards this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even if they hang themselves. He's saying, actually, we all work for our happiness. We all work for what makes us happy. Now, as I say, joy and happiness are not identical, but sometimes we make joy too spiritual, as though it's got nothing to do with happiness, and we make happiness too trivial, as though it doesn't really involve any joy. When we're talking here about happiness, what I mean by that is true happiness, not some fleeting fancy, not some passing emotion. We want real joy, don't we? We want true happiness. So that's the first reason that we fight for joy, because the Bible tells us that we're to have joy. The second reason that I wanted to address this is that I know that a lot of us are struggling uh, in this area. 
uh, in finding joy. If you think that you're alone, you're not. Quite a lot of people have spoken to me over the past few months and talked to me uh, about struggling to find joy. So I thought that was most, uh, it was good for us to address this as a church uh, together. In fact, I think it's probably the most common thing that people have come to me with. And I should say with this series that I'm not promising that it will solve the issue. I can't guarantee that at the end of this series that you'll be more joyful. But I do think that this is the right path to joy. And I found it helpful myself in the fight for joy. So that's why joy, but why do we call it a fight? Well, because it is a fight, isn't it? It's a fight for joy. Why? Because it takes effort. It takes work. Why would it take effort to have joy? Well, because the world gets us down, doesn't it? The world, ourselves, the devil. Joy doesn't seem to come to us naturally. Or more, the joy that comes up in us is a gift from the Spirit, as a fruit of the Spirit, is so often crushed by our experience in the world. Pursuing joy in this world is like that song about Dear Liza. Do you know that one? There's a hole in my bucket. Dear Liza, dear Liza. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Actually, there's a hole in our bucket. As long as we live in this world, we'll never have a full bucket of joy, if you like. And if we get anywhere close, well, the bucket is always emptying. And we continually need to be topping up our joy. We can never sit back and say, finished. And in that sense, it's a fight. It's an effort. This topping up of our joy takes work. So on the back of your notice sheets, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 24. This is what Paul writes. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we, that's him and his companions, we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in the faith. Do you see there, Paul is saying he's working with them for their joy. That's part of Paul's ministry. So it involves work. It's a gift from God, but it's something that we're involved in working for too. That might seem a bit of a contradiction. But if you think about it, it's described as a fruit, isn't it? Well, who makes the fruit grow? Well, God makes the fruit grow, doesn't he? We know that, just in in a field. Does that mean you don't have to tend the trees? No, it doesn't. You still need to tend your trees. Who makes the crops grow? Well, God does. Does that mean you don't have to plough and sow? No. You still plough and sow, don't you? Even though God gives it as a gift, even though God does it. Could God do it anyway? Well, yes, he could, couldn't he? He could make crops grow miraculously if you've never planted them. But is that how God usually works? No. That's not how God usually works. So joy is something God produces in our heart by his spirit. But it's something that we're responsible to have too. Now there's no guarantee that if we plough and sow that fruit will come. But if we don't plough and sow, if we don't tend the tree, then we can hardly blame God for a lack of fruit. So this series really is about tending the tree about sowing and ploughing. It's no guarantee that at the end of it, joy will come. But this is the usual way that God has ordained for these things to happen. Now, I should give you a warning as well before we carry on in this series. The fight for joy can become an idol. When we talk about pursuing joy, we don't really mean pursuing joy alone. What we mean is pursuing joy in God. 
You see, the pursuit of joy is really the pursuit of God. Because all true joy is found in God. If we pursue joy independently somewhere over here, independently of God, then actually what we're pursuing is an idol. That's not to say that we can't enjoy other things. Um, But there will be joys that point to our ultimate joy, if you like. More of this in week three. Don't worry if that's a bit complicated. But the goal of what we're talking about is not just to be happy. The goal is to be happy in God. To find our joy in him. If our goal is happiness by itself, I've got some bad news for you. You're not going to find it. Because actually joy, happiness, always has something else as its object. It's always looking at something else that we find joy. More of that later on as well. But if we seek happiness without reference to God, we make happiness an idol. We make God a means to another end, our own happiness. But God is his own end. The pursuit of joy is really a pursuit of God. But before we get lost in too much of that, we're going to look at our our first sort of big point this Uh, This morning, the significance of seeing. It's sort of the second point on your notice sheets, but there we go. The significance of seeing. This is going to help us in our fight for joy. Did you know that the Bible tells you that you've got two sets of eyes? Now, I'm not talking about if you've got glasses on. I'm not being insulting or anything like that. Uh, Don't worry. Um, You have one set on your face under your eyebrows or eyebrow, depending on how God has blessed you. Um... So you've got one here, but you also have one here in your heart. Ephesians 1 verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The Bible speaks about another set of eyes that we have that aren't in our head, but are in our heart. And that's how you can have statements in the Bible like Matthew 13, 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see. There's some ways that we can see things with our eyes but not see them with the eyes of our hearts. Now, the eyes in our head can see some amazing things, can't they? We've been watching a bit of planet Earth with the boys. You know, you can see all those amazing things under the sea and uh, all these different animals that God has put there. You can see magnificent works of art, you know, if you go to the art galleries. You see magnificent buildings, breathtaking landscapes. You can see some amazing things with the eyes in your head. But the eyes of our heart were designed to see something even more amazing. Something that the eyes of our head cannot see. Our eyes were designed to see, our eyes of our heart were designed to see the glory of God. We see that in our passage in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of the glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The eyes of our hearts are there to behold the glory of God. Something far more amazing than David Attenborough can show you. But what do we mean by the glory of God? It's a really hard word to describe, right? It's a bit like that word beauty. You can't sort of point at it. You know, you can say, oh, there's a chair. That's that sort of easy, but glory is not something really that you can point to. But the glory of something is, it, is its perfection in the moment. So think about 1966, the England football team uh, winning the World Cup. 
That was was our one moment of sporting glory uh, there in 1966. Or think about Winston Churchill on VE Day. That moment of glory. Wellington at Waterloo. It's like they were made for that moment, isn't it? Their moment of glory. Now for us it's fleeting, it passes. Like the glory on Moses' face that we were talking about in the the passage. But with God it's, it's permanent. His glory is always there, it doesn't fade. Why doesn't it fade? Well because the glory of God is God himself. The glory of God is God himself. It is who he is. It's God on show. In the Old Testament, you see uh, breakouts of God's glory, don't you? It comes down on Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning. Ezekiel glimpses it as a vision of a throne surrounded by fire. It descends and fills the tabernacle in the wilderness so that nobody can even enter it. It fills the temple in Solomon's day with similar effect. In the New Testament, the glory of the Lord visibly shines as the angels announce the birth of Christ. And we're told in Revelation that we'll have no need of sun in the new creation because God's glory will be its burning light. So it's this idea of an awe-inspiring, almost terrifying beauty. Do you know what I mean by that? His beauty and perfections are so great that they almost have substance in themselves. The word glory in Hebrew carries an idea of weight, of, of something that weighs down. You can feel it. It's almost palpable. It's the sort of thing that makes you fall down on your knees in front of it. It's almost too beautiful to see. And yet, that is what the eyes of our hearts are designed to see. That's what we as human beings are to see. But an encounter with something like that will not leave us unchanged, will it? Which is exactly what it says in our verse there, again, in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we behold God's glory, we're transformed Transformed into his image. Change takes place as we encounter the glory of God. Well, what has this got to do with joy? Well, the fight for joy is really a fight to see. It's only as we encounter the glory of God that we will experience real and lasting joy. Seeing and savouring God's glory is what we were designed for. It's the fuel that our souls are made to run on. We were made to enjoy God, to see and savour his glory. People much cleverer than ourselves, I put it like this in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man, the purpose of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're here for. The purpose for which God created us. And as we do that, as we behold his glory, we glorify God and fulfill our own purpose in life. Our very enjoyment of the sight of the glory of God is glorifying to God. 
This is what Jonathan Edwards wrote. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. In the same way, it's like a chef. A chef is not glorified by his food being eaten, just by itself, but his food being eaten and enjoyed. An artist is not glorified by people just looking at his painting, but by people enjoying looking at his painting. But without tasting, without seeing, without beholding, we can't enjoy. We have to take that step first, don't we? So the big question in our fight for joy becomes, how do we behold the glory of God? How do we see the unseeable? Well, the answer is our final point. Fix your eyes on Christ. Look at our passage again. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 this time. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's in seeing Jesus Christ that we behold the glory of God and are transformed. It's what we see elsewhere in scripture. So in Hebrews uh, 1 verse 3, uh, he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We also see that in looking to him, we're transformed. So 1 John 3 verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. Why will we be like him? Because we'll see him as he is. We'll behold him, unhindered by sin. And that's why the Bible again and again tells us to look to him. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Or think about it from John's Gospel, John 6 verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We're to look to Jesus. Just as Israel looked to the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, so we look to Christ. Not just to be saved, but to be transformed. That word looking in Hebrews 12 is translated... In other versions, as fixing your gaze, focusing, fixing your attention, fixing your eyes on Jesus. The images of a race with the finish line in sight. Jesus is stood there when we fix our eyes on him. We look to him for our joy and our transformation. And that makes sense when we think about our other experiences of joy. See, joy is not found in looking inward at ourselves or looking at joy in itself. 
It's found in looking outside ourselves. So imagine for a second, you know, you're, you're looking at a sunrise on a beautiful morning, admiring its beauty, and those feelings of awe and excitement begin to rise in you. Well, one of the surest ways to stop it is to start thinking about your own experience of enjoying uh, the sunset, rather than looking out, starting looking in. Oh, look, I'm experiencing joy, I wonder why. Or in a relationship, you know, you've got an evening enjoying one another's company, One of the surest ways to stop it is start to analyse, why am I feeling like this? Instead of looking at the other person or looking at the emotion itself. When we look to something else, we can experience joy. But if we look at joy itself, we lose it. Let me tell you what C.S. Lewis said. In introspection, we try to look inside ourselves and see what is going on. But nearly everything that was going on in that moment is stopped by the very act of our turning and looking at it. He's talking there about our joy. He's saying if we look at joy inwardly, then we won't find it. We need to look out of ourselves. So looking inwardly, we will never find joy. We have to find it in something or someone else. And our great problem as human beings is not that we desire joy. That's not the problem but that we look for joy in the wrong places, in ourselves, in our jobs, in our families, even in our ministries. But those are things which can't ultimately satisfy us. Those things are the wrong shape for our hearts, if you like. They're fleeting and transient. Our hearts were designed for something bigger, for something else. Augustine said this, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest. In you. So where is joy to be found? Well, it's found looking to him. Christ is the place to go for, for joy. But the Bible says that we've committed two sins. Jeremiah 2, uh, 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out systems for themselves, broken systems that can hold no water. You see, the problem is not that we're thirsty, but that we go to the wrong place to drink, with drinks that cannot satisfy. Actually, we need to drink from Christ. We need to find our joy in him. We're not to stoically die of thirst, but we're to drink and drink and drink. And if we cannot drink of Christ, we don't go out and hew our own systems. We search until we found that all-satisfying fountain of life in Christ. So the problem is not that we are thirsty. It's that we settle for dirty, filthy water from our own systems when we need to go to Christ for our joy. But believing joy is found in looking to Christ... Actually, finding joy there are two different things, aren't they? And I think we know that. But if we know where to be be looking, then that's half the battle done, isn't it? That will save us from a million blind alleyways that we could go down. You know, if we know that the sun is found in the sky, it will save us decades of looking at the floor for the sun. So this is where we must go if we want to have real, lasting joy and genuine transformation. We must behold the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. Now that's about as far as we're going to go this morning. That's, that's basically all I wanted to do to set out the series. But we know now what the nature of the fight is. We know what kind of animal it is. And the next two weeks we'll be looking at how to behold, how do we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Next week we're going to look at the things that prevent us from seeing God's glory, what kills our joy. And the week after we'll be looking at the gifts that God has given us to behold his glory and fight for joy. But before we close, do you see uh, where we have got to so far? Joy and happiness are not bad things. But are we still secretly tempted into thinking that God wants us to be stoically miserable? We've seen that the problem is where we look for joy and happiness. Are we still looking in the wrong place? Are we still trying to hew out systems for ourselves? We've seen that true joy is found as we behold the glory of God. Are we actually settling for less? We've also seen that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Are we trying to look for the glory of God somewhere else? We are to see, um, we are to see in order to savour the beauty of Christ. Do we see the beauty of Christ and all that God has done for us in him? Well, let's pray that God would give us eyes to see. In the end, that's what we need to do, isn't it? God does give us joy as a gift. So let's pray that God would give us just a taste of that joy this morning. Let's pray.